0: I think I look at movies differently than some people do. I I look for and notice things that normal people don't notice. One uh, characteristic of movies for years now is that the cuts are very short. In fact, you can sometimes read in the IMDb web page that the average cut length is a a second and a half or two seconds, Uh, one actor, the other actor, one actor, the other actor, the scene, and often the actors aren't even on the stage the same day. They just film their parts differently and splice them together. So I always delight seeing in a movie where there's what's called a long take or a continuous take. And that's where the camera is looking at the scene and then follows an actor or follows the action for some time, for maybe minutes. Recently, the movie 1917 was filmed as if it were one continuous long take. They had to do a little magic, but it's filmed in that perspective. One of the blessings to me in preaching through Matthew is seeing. A number of long takes in this gospel, a number of threads in this gospel, that if you have heard these stories preached or read them and thought of them as little snippets and incidents, you don't see the continuity. And so we're going to look at two particular threads today along those lines, which I'm calling threads of spread bread. Uh, One of them is uh, Jesus puts his finger on In verses 24 and 26, which we just read, he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in verse 24. In verse 26, he says, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. But the woman's response points us to the other thread where she says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, for in fact the little dogs eat from the little crumbs which fall from the table of their master's. Jesus spreads the children's bread to a little dog. Paul points in the same direction in his way in Romans chapter 1:16, words many of you know, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then what does he say? To the Jew first and also to the Greek So let's see how Matthew develops these two threads of spread bread through his gospel. We could look at a lot of scriptures. We're going to focus mainly on the gospel of Matthew. So let's begin Roman numeral one with the story hitherto, starting at the very start, because the first thread of bread leads us to the Jew first. Capital letter A, it leads us to the Jew first. And we see this first in the emphasis and in the outreach that Matthew shows and relates in his gospel, go back to simply the first chapter of the gospel and the first verse of the gospel. Matthew 1, verse 1. So what does he say? He says, the book of the genealogy, well, right there actually in Greek, he says uh, the, of the Genesis, Uh, the word we use for Genesis, the title of the first book in the Bible. But the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which means Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is a Jewish office. He's the object of Jewish hope and Jewish prophecy. Jesus the Messiah. And then he says the son of David, the son of Abraham. And who is David? David is the tribe from which Messiah would come. The Old Testament prophesies the coming of Messiah from the particular nation of Israel, from the particular tribe of Judah, from the particular house of David, And so Jesus Christ, the son of David, and then he says the son of Abraham, and who is Abraham? He's the father of Israel. He's the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of Israel. So the very first words are very Jewish-centered, you could say. They're centered and point us to and make us think of the nation of Israel. And so we go on in the genealogy that follows. This is a genealogy tracing through the history of Israel, showing us how Messiah has the... um, the pedigree that he needs in order to be the foretold, prophesied Messiah. And then see how it it culminates in verses 20 through 23. Joseph is married to this woman who turns up pregnant, not by him. So he's considering what to do about that. And as he considered, an angel comes and says, Joseph, and what does he call him? Son of David. I hope you're looking at your Bible. Matthew 1.20, Joseph, son of David, he says, pointing to the fact that Joseph is of this line from whom Messiah would come. And then he says, don't fear to take Mary because uh, what she bears is of the Holy Spirit. You'll call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. Why did this happen? Verse 22 points us to what? to Old Testament prophecy, the prophecy in the Jewish Bible, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 of the virgin-born son. And this is something that we we're not going to look at over and over again, but you saw it as we studied together, uh, that again and again, Matthew points us to fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, of the scriptures of the Torah, of the Old Testament. Again and again, we see the words that it might be fulfilled through these chapters. Uh, look at chapter 2 now. And what, are, what do we see these... Um, Noble visitors asking in Jerusalem, the king the capital of the kingdom of Israel, where is he who has been born what? King of the Jews. Now obviously that's a very, very emphatic point pointing us in that direction. And again a prophecy is cited in verse six, answering their question, well, answering Herod's question, that from Bethlehem would come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So we're, we're told very clearly from the start. This is the Messiah of the Jews coming from the people of Israel, coming with a special mission given by God for Israel in the context of Israel. And, and look in his first sermon of a, a, a thing he brings up in chapter 5, verse 17. The Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And Matthew probably finally writing this gospel in a time when the church was made up of many, many Gentiles, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus said in so many words, I didn't come just to set aside or to nullify the Word of God. I came to fulfill all of it. So he comes in fulfillment of Jewish Scripture. And then when he picks apostles and he sends them on a mission, look at chapter 10, how does he instruct them? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6. Well, let's start with verse 5. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, again, very clear, very emphatic. They're to go, not to Gentiles, leaves us out, most or all of us, but they're to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now you think, well, those words, we just read those words, but we didn't read chapter 10. No, we didn't. We read from chapter 15. Take a look at 15, and let's just remind ourselves. Going to be looking at a lot of Scripture, and the challenge and the suspense is going to be whether my big sausagey fingers can turn the pages uh, in a timely way, but chapter fifteen and verse twenty-six. Now let's start with verse twenty-four. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, there's those same words repeated by the Lord Jesus, and then in verse twenty-six uh, six, he says, "You shouldn't take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs." So you see, through all of this, is a great emphasis on Israel on the Jewish mission of the Messiah, the Jewish nature and origin of the Messiah. Again, the very word Messiah is a Jewish term, not not lifted from Greek culture at all. They use the Greek word Christos, but not the concept. The concept is strictly Old Testament. That's the emphasis in Matthew. That is the outreach of the Lord Jesus. So, given this emphasis, given this outreach, what is the response to Jesus and his ministry? Number two, These Jews to whom Messiah reached out, these Jews prepared by God through their own scripture to look for this very Messiah concerning whom Jesus said, if you listen to Moses, you would be believing in me. Well, how did they respond? Did they listen to Moses? Did they believe in Jesus? Look at chapter 9 and verses 11 through 13 for starts. So Jesus is called a tax collector, a very lapsed, disreputable Jewish man named Matthew, who later wrote the gospel we're studying right now. He called him, and Matthew was so excited, he made a party, and he he, uh, invited all his nasty, all his rowdy friends, all his nasty friends to get together, because that's who he knew. And my, oh my, the Pharisees did not like this, and they saw this and said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus stepped up and answered himself. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then he gives them an assignment to go to their own Bible that they claim to believe in. And he says, you go learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then look down in verse 34, when he's casting a demon out, the Pharisees observing this. Their learned and considered response to the obvious manifestation of the power of God in Messiah is he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, at this point, they're just kind of floating that, I think, as a trial balloon. It hasn't become their settled response, but it would later. Now, turn to chapter 11 and look at verse 16 because chapter 11 comes after. Chapter 10, you say, thank you. Obviously, that's what you went to seminary for. Yes, I can tell you 11 comes after 10. What was 10? 10 was the mission. To whom? Not Gentiles, not Samaritans. To whom? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. How did they respond to this ministry? Chapter 11 tells us, well, look at what Jesus says in verse uh, 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? Now, there are individual exceptions, and there are little groups of people, but as a rule, here's how Jesus characterizes this generation. He characterizes them as a bunch of spoiled children who want to call the shots, play their games, and not listen to what God is sending them. That's basically the meaning of the words that follow. And look at verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to Chorazin, Bethsaida. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon... Isn't that interesting? We just studied a story that happened in Tyre and Sidon... where people are listening to Jesus. But anyway, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon... which occurred in you, they would have repented. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon... in the day of judgment than you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom... which occurred in you... It would have remained to this day. It would be more tolerable for Sodom. What a slap in the face. But this is, this is what their response has been to Jesus, the response of that generation. They do not receive. They do not believe. They do not repent. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. When the Pharisees see them simply walking through a grain field and eating some of the heads off the wheat, they say, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do, on a Sabbath. So they want to argue with him, not learn from him. And verse 10, they're in a synagogue on, a, on the Sabbath, and uh, they, it, they, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because they see a man there who needs healing. Why did they ask him that? So that they might learn? No, no. Verse 10 tells us it was so they might accuse him. See, they already had the verdict. They just needed to work up the evidence. They already had the sentence. They just had to come up with a case. So uh, they ask him and he answers them and we read that they go out and they take counsel to destroy him. Verse 14, they don't listen to his answer. They go out and take counsel and figure out how they might destroy him. That's their response to the Messiah. Uh, Look down further at verses 23 and 24. Again, he's Uh, casting a demon out of a man, and the crowds are are really wondering, could this possibly be the Messiah? They're they're noticing these signs as they should be, and they're thinking about them as they should be, and the Pharisees want to put a cork on that right away. So verse 24, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Uh, This is the brilliant conclusion of the brain trust. It's the power of Satan by which Jesus does that, and Jesus responds by showing what absolute nonsense this is. And then he responds by showing them that this is a sin that they're committing that is not a pardonable sin. They're attributing the power and works of God, the power and works of the Spirit of God to the to the devil. Verses 30 through 32. And then he tells a little parable to illustrate the consequences of this disastrous stance of theirs. 39 and following. Look, They ask for a sign on top of all this, because, of course, a sign would totally change their mind. But when he does a sign, they just say, well, that's Satan. But they want another sign. So verse 39, he says, An evil and adulterous generation, there's that word again, eagerly seeks a sign, and they'll just be given the sign of the resurrection. Verse 41, again, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented, and something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42 The Queen of the South will rise up with, there's that word again, this generation. Generation of what? Of Jews. And they will condemn it. She will condemn it because she came to hear Solomon and someone greater than Solomon is here. And then the parable I mentioned, verses 42 and following. When an inkling spirit goes out of a man and comes back and just finds he's reformed himself and he's all moral and cleaned up, what that spirit does is he brings along seven of his ugly friends and things are worse than before for the man. But look at the the conclusion Jesus draws in verse 45. That is the way it will also be with this evil Generation. So that's the sin of that generation. That generation is rejecting Messiah, but they're all moral and they're all religious and they've got all their laws and all their traditions, and that's just making a greater home for demons because they've committed the unpardonable sin. So now look at chapter 13. Jesus, having done this, begins responding in parables to the masses and teaching the disciples privately. And the disciples say, why are you suddenly just talking to them in parables? And Jesus responds by quoting a a prophecy. In verses 14 and 15, the prophecy prophecy of Isaiah. You'll keep on hearing but not understand. Keep on seeing but not perceive. For the heart of this people, what people? Well, in the fulfillment, that generation of Jews who reject their Messiah this people have become dull. Their ears, they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes, uh, lest they uh, understand and turn and I heal them, he says. And then v- chapter 15, where we've been recently studying. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Here are the top men for Jerusalem. Surely we can expect better things from the top men from Jerusalem. Ph- Pharisees and scribes come, and what's their grand concern? Well, it's because the disciples don't wash their hands properly before meals. And as I explained at the time, it's not that these are just a bunch of Karens worrying about COVID. They are worried about Jewish uh, purification laws, which are very important to them to avoid that, that demon, you remember, that, that sleeps on your hands over, overnight when you don't wash them. And the things we explained and we studied through this, well, that's their big concern. Their big concern is is... The tradition of the elders, and he fires back that they've rejected the commandment of God. And how do they respond to this? The disciples say they're offended. They were offended. Humbled and repentant? No, 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 no. Offended. And Jesus says they're just blind guides. So you see, that is the emphasis and outreach we see, and that's the response of the children to whom belongs the bread. As Jesus says to the woman... You shouldn't take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Well, this is what the children did when the bread was offered them. By and large, that generation wanted nothing to do. You see, think of it in terms of Jesus' conversation with this Gentile woman, this Canaanite, as Matthew we saw that Matthew sinisterly calls her, this Canaanite woman, that he says to her, you shouldn't take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she says, well, no, of course not. Of course, you wouldn't want to do that, but, but the little dogs do eat the crumbs that fall off the table. Well, the truth is, the truth is, by and large, the children have shoved the bread off the table. Like spoiled little brats. Didn't want exactly that. You didn't cut the bread right. You you cut off the the crust, and you shouldn't have done that, or vice versa. I won't eat it. Now I'll throw a a tantrum. I'll throw a fit. And this is exactly what they're doing. They're throwing a tantrum. They're throwing a fit. They're not going to have the bread. And meanwhile, the little dogs are delighted to see that it's being offered to them. But that takes us to the next consideration. We've seen letter A to the Jew first. Now let's uh, remember what is the rest of what Paul said. And to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, letter B, and also to the Gentile, letter B. That was prophesied a lot in the Old Testament, but I'm trying to stick mainly with Matthew's Gospel and able very easily to do that because of the way Matthew put it. Where shall we see the thread prophesied that there would be bread for the Gentile, that the Messiah would have a ministry even to the Gentile? Turn to Matthew 1, verse 1. You say, wait a minute. You took me to Matthew 1.1 1, 1 to show me that this was about Jews. Be patient. Remain in the car. Keep your hands and legs inside the car at all times. Just go with me. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Let's look again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He says, well, David, we said that's, that's the king of the Jews. Yes, David is the king of the Jews. That's right. But look at Isaiah chapter eleven. We look at a couple in Isaiah, perhaps, or at least allude to them. Isaiah chapter eleven, and this is a messianic chapter. It's about, verse one says, a shoot coming from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots. Well that's the Lord Jesus Christ who's actually a shoot from Jesse, who's Jesse? David's father, he's both the shoot and the root of Jesse. He is the source of Jesse and he comes from Jesse. How can he do that? Well, he's God and he's man. But look down and focus on verse 11. Speaking of the Messiah's kingdom, then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, plural, not the people, Israel, but the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. That's one of a number of prophecies along those lines that point us to, yes, that this Messiah, son of David, would be one to whom the Gentiles would come and not just Israel. So saying David, yes, points to the Jews, but it also points to the Gentiles. And then what does Matthew say? A son of Abraham, he says, well, son of Abraham, turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We read this at the beginning of the service. And this is why. So, Genesis chapter 12, many of you will know this is the source of the Abrahamic covenant, the the sort of source verses about it. God making all these promises to Abraham to make him a great nation, his name great, and so forth. But don't overlook the last clause. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just his direct physical descendants, who would be the nation of Israel, but all the families of the earth in him. How in him? Look at 22.18. Genesis 22.18 gives us more specificity. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And there are at least two other verses that say that same promise. In your seed. And yes, Israel is descendants of Abram physically, But ultimately, his seed is the same seed as the woman's seed. And who's that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So for, for the person who understands and knows his Old Testament, saying that he's the son of David and the son of Abram doesn't just point to the Jewish nature of his origin and his ministry, but also reminds us that he has a Gentile ministry and a Gentile promise as well. That yes, he would save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one, but he also would be sent in blessing to the Gentiles as well. Turn back to Matthew chapter 4. And you can leave Isaiah, we'll just allude to that. Matthew chapter 4, another fulfillment of a prophecy as to where Jesus made his home. He'd make his home in Capernaum in that area by Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew says that's to fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. So who saw a great light? Well, of course, all the Jews living there. But who else would see the great light? Well, Gentiles, because it's Galilee of the Gentiles and not just of Israel. So again, another hint. What? Look at Jesus. I I showed you Matthew ten. Look at Matthew ten again. You say well, what? Why would you go to Matthew 10? You just quoted the part where Jesus says, I'm just sending you to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, he did say that, but look at another prophecy he made in that same commission, verse 18 of Matthew 10. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to whom? The Gentiles. So that mission would be worked in there, though it wasn't the primary and first focus and target. One last prophecy. Chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. About the character of Jesus' ministry. Quoting from Isaiah again. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And goes on and says more, and we'll just skip to verse 21, in his name the Gentiles will hope. So this is quoting the Old Testament. So as I said earlier, those prophecies are in the Old Testament, but they're also in Matthew. Matthew works in the prophecies that point us to the fact that Messiah would indeed have bread to give to the Gentiles. So we're seeing two very... A definite threads of spread bread, aren't we? We're seeing the bread sent to the children, but we're seeing that it also will be sent to the Gentiles. But there's more. Let's look at some of the glimmerings that Matthew has given. And one is in that genealogy. If you weren't here, you might be saying, what? How could there be anything for Gentiles in the genealogy? I'll show you. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. In here we see in this very Jewish genealogy, verse 3. Judah. Ah, he was from the tribe of Judah, indeed. How was he from the tribe of Judah? Well, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar? Who's that? It's not usual to mention a woman. Who's Tamar? Well, she's a Canaanite woman. <laughs> what? Like the lady in chapter 15? Yep. She's a Canaanite woman. She's in the genealogy of the Messiah. Genesis 38. And read verse 5. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. That's another lady's name. Who's Rahab? Which tribe of Israel was she from? Not any. <laughs> she was from Jericho. She's a Gentile. And then keep uh, looking on in verse uh, 6. This one's, this one's debatable. But Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, that's Bathsheba. She may very well be a Gentile. We're not dead sure. We do know she was married to a Gentile. He's the one who's named Uriah the Judite. No, Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, that's not an Israelite tribe. So here's these Gentile women in the genealogy of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? What's the next thing? In chapter 2, I showed you that Jesus was called king of the Jews. I made a point that that points to his Jewish ministry. Who called him king of the Jews? Who's the first to call him king of the Jews in Matthew? Magi. Magi. Which tribe of Judah were they from? Which tribe of Israel were they from? The none of them. (laughs) They were Gentiles, he tells us, from the east. They were Gentiles. So the first people to speak of Jesus as king of the Jews in the Gospel of Matthew were Gentiles. And it's Herod the king who wants no part of it. And the Jewish scholars are not interested in coming to worship this king. But Gentiles are. The Jewish scholars can't be bothered to go a few miles to see this person. Herod wants to kill him, but they come all the way from the east to worship him. Gentiles. You think that's an accident? No, that's part of the design of this gospel. It's teaching us. And when Jesus begins ministering in chapter 4, who are the people who go out to see him? Look at chapter 4, verse 25, right before the Sermon on the Mount. Large crowds followed him from Galilee. It was the Galilee of the Gentiles, didn't that say? And the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Wait a minute, Decapolis? What's Decapolis? If you know anything, you, that sounds like two Greek words, doesn't it? It is, it's two Greek words. Deca, which means ten, polis, which means city. It's a ten-city coalition, Gentile cities, Gentile region. But they're coming out to hear Jesus from that region. So there are all sorts of indications, but we're, not, we're just kind of getting started What's the great thing? Jesus is calling people to repent. In other words, to exercise faith in God. Well, where does he find great faith? Does he speak of the great faith of his Jewish disciples, raised up as Jews and taught the word of God? Does he often speak of their great faith? He speaks of their faith. (laughs) When he speaks of it, what what does he call it? Little faith. They have little faith. Well, how sad. He doesn't find anybody who has great faith. Oh, well, he does really, though? Where? Look at chapter 8. See who he finds who has great faith. Chapter 8, and we begin reading with verse 4. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. What's a centurion? Well, you know because you were in Sunday school. Phil, explain that to us. A centurion was a soldier for the nation of Rome or the empire of Rome. And he was captain over around 100 people. He was a Gentile but he's asking Jesus for help. And when Jesus broaches the, do you mean come to your house? The centurion says, oh no, I understand all about authority. And I know you've got it. You just say, and it's gonna happen. I say, and it happens. You say, it'll happen. And to this, Jesus says what? Verse 10, truly he, well, first of all, he marveled, Jesus marveled, and said, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, it's not just a coincidence. He, speci- he could have just said, I haven't found such great faith. But he specifically says, I haven't found it in Israel. But they're the children. He's their bread. But they're not responding in faith. But this Gentile is, not just faith, he says, great faith. Well, wow, if only he could have found one other person. Wouldn't that have been great if he found one other person with great faith to make him marvel? Did he find one other person? Who? We just studied about her. We just studied about her. Look at chapter 15. And this woman, he's, he's fencing with verbally and drawing out and showing to everybody the quality and the depth and the tenacity of her faith when he says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she says, yes, that's absolutely true. But the dogs do eat. The little dogs, the little house dogs, they do eat. What they eat is they eat the crumbs. That's all I'm asking for. It's a little crumb for a little dog. And how does Jesus respond? He says, Oh, woman. Oh, that just means that's, that's an exclamation. Oh, woman. He says, your faith is great. It shall be done to you as you wish. Roman centurion, the despised Romans, but they one of them shows great faith. The evil, sinister Canaanites, but one of them shows great faith. So, in the backstory, story, the story so far, you see two threads of spread bread, don't you? You see the bread presented again and again and again to the children. And the children again and again and again say, no, that's not what I want. And find one way or another to find fault, with individual exceptions, of course. But the generation, Jesus says, is rejecting it. But at the same time, there's the other thread. Well, it's supposed to be a bread of crumbs for little dogs, little crumbs. But a lot of dogs seem a lot more interested in the children's bread than the children are. Do you see that? And that's a very definitely painted picture in Matthew. And we've got another one this week in the portion of Scripture we're studying. So let's look at the stories before us. And in this section, there are two stories. But they take place in the same place. And they're the same basic people. First, a story of healing. This is Roman numeral 2, capital letter A. Story of healing in verses 29 through 31. Now, Mark tells us this is in Decapolis. And moving on from there, where's from there? The regions of Tyre and Sidon. That's where he met this Canaanite woman. The regions of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus came along the Sea of Galilee. So let me try to uh, try to describe this. I, uh, if you can picture a map, picture the the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes off north and west to Tyre along the coast, which is miles and miles away, as I explained, and then goes up the coast north to Sidon and then he has to cut east and south probably takes him through Caesarea Philippi comes down on the back side of the Sea of Galilee and if you can picture I'll make it bigger now <laughs> the Sea of Galilee and about halfway down and on is the Decapolis we just talked about it's the region of the Decapolis what was that was that a Jewish region it was a Gentile region who wasn't in authority in that region Herod Antipas, who Jesus had just gone away from. He just went away from him, and he just went away from these Jerusalem big boys who were after him and wanting to cause a, a confrontation. So he's now on the on the east-south side of the Sea of Galilee. He's in Decapolis. So who are the people he's dealing with here? Jews or Gentiles? may very well be Jews, but it's, it's a Gentile population. It's a Gentile area. In fact, this is the only real mission, you could say, or trip that Jesus made specifically to Gentile lands. This mission to, to Tyre where he saw this woman and, and healed a man there, Mark tells us, and then Sidon and then back down and he's still with Jewish, uh, pardon me, Gentile crowds. And so let's read on. He sat down there on this mountain on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. I, and I'm translating this very li- literally as I usually do. I almost said liberally, bite my tongue very literally, and came up to him many crowds, and came up to him many crowds, having with themselves lame, people who can't walk, blind, can't see, crippled, deformed or maimed in some other way, mute, and many other people. So Matthew's saying there's lots of other categories of problems as well, in addition to the lame and the the crippled. Many other people as well. And they threw them down alongside his feet, and he healed them. Now, most translations soften that, laid him, laid them down, set them down. But it's the word usually, crypto. it's usually translated to throw down. Jesus, uh, Judas throws down his money into the temple, and we'll see another use of it. So I'll, I'll explain in just a moment why I translated that so literally. But they threw them down alongside his feet, and he healed them. And the crowd marveled as they saw, mute people speaking, crippled people healthy and lame people walking and blind people saying, and they glorified the God of Israel. So he's in Gentile Decapolis, staying away from Herod Antipas, staying away from the Jerusalem top men, ministering in this Gentile area. And here we have the second group of people who were thrown down. You say second, what was the other group of people? Well, chapter 9, and verse 36, 936, and when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion concerning them because they were torn up and thrown down as sheep not having a shepherd. Now, these are Jewish crowds there in chapter 9. They're torn up and thrown down. Their, their leaders, their religious leaders were not feeding them, not healing them, not giving them the word of God. They were tormenting them and they were oppressing them and they were misleading them torn up and thrown down and here's another group of people who are thrown down but those people their leaders are doing the best to keep them away from jesus these people are bringing their people to jesus these gentiles are bringing them to him and throwing them down at his feet so if you're going to throw them down that's the place to throw them down throw them down at the feet of jesus So they say, and I I think that the the thought isn't that they're literally cruelly throwing them down, it's that they're hastily, there's a lot of people there, there's crowds, so they're hastily bringing them up for Jesus' attention, and they're depositing them at Jesus' feet, and Jesus looks, and he heals them. Now, notice what real healing is. Uh, Again, I just hope I'm doing some good and impressing this on some minds, and I hope you're spreading it and using it. Uh, The the charismatic movement has only survived because people lose sight of what the Bible actually teaches and they accept their lines and their excuses and their... Fabrications about what healing and miracles and signs really are. This is what real healing is. What, what is happening here in real healing? People who were known to be unable to walk, unable to see, crippled, maybe even deformed in some way, that word suggests, unable to speak. And, and what does verse 31 say? The crowd marveled as they saw mute people speaking, crippled people, healthy. In other words, these healings were Obvious, they were open, they were unmistakable. The crowds who brought the sick people saw the sick people no longer sick, disabled, crippled, affected. Jesus made a, a healing that everybody saw and nobody could deny. And in, in the case of the, of the charismatic movement, has been trying for a hundred years, has not yet once produced a miracle that had the unbelieving world marveling because there was no explanation for what was done. Uh, and Jesus did this all the time. All the time. They saw it in broad daylight. And it wasn't like my friend Justin Peters who, who has cerebral palsy and would go to healing meetings and, and he would be carted off to another area because they knew he wasn't going to be healed of his cerebral palsy. But I dare say if someone with his issue, and, and may very well have been people with that issue who were brought up to Jesus, went up unable to walk, came back able to walk. Why? Because they were actually healed with the real deal. Jesus and his apostles were the real deal. This is real healing now. Here's the thing to notice here. When people saw this, what was their response? Verse 31. They glorified who? The God of Israel. Have, had you ever noticed that before? I'll confess I hadn't in many years of reading before studying this more closely. This is not the way Jews talk. This is the way Gentiles talk. What had what had Uh, The woman said to Jesus, she'd asked for mercy and help from son of David. She knew he was son of David and they knew he was the son of David and was preaching to them the God of Israel, not their pagan God, not their pagan gods, but the God of Israel. They knew it was the God of Israel who had sent his servant and was doing these miracles. So, What's going on? <laughs> what is this? Well, this is the benefit of, of noticing that what Matthew's giving us is a continuous view or a continuous long track that you think back and you remember that Jesus, this Canaanite woman's begging for help and mercy and Jesus says, well, you know, you don't take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she says, but the little dogs do eat the little crumbs. And then what's the next thing we say? Well, and what, what are they talking about? Are they talking about literal bread? No, what, what's the little crumb she wants? Healing for one child, one demon-possessed child. And what's the next thing we read? Healing for a bunch of Gentiles. Crumbs, crumbs, crumbs. There's an awful lot of little crumbs that aren't there there in the grace and mercy of God. All these Gentiles, not the children. Children don't want the bread. That generation don't want the bread. But all these Gentiles... They're scrambling after the crumbs. And in God's grace and God's mercy, there's a whole lot of crumbs. That's the spiritual crumb. But, but wait, the beautiful thing is, spiritual bread is given, so no literal bread? Oh, wait. <laughs> Oh, wait, there's also literal bread. See, this is the advantage of I hope you're always reading ahead and thinking about the section. That's the advantage of going to a Bible-teaching church. You always know what the next sermon's going to be about. Uh, (laughs) It's not going to hop around from topic to topic. It'll proceed. And here's the next section. Then we've seen uh, stories of healing, but let's see a story of feeding now in verses 32 through 39. Literal bread for these little dogs. And Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I'm moved with compassion toward the crowd. I think this is the only time where Jesus reports that of himself. Usually it's Matthew saying he's moved with compassion. But here Jesus is telling them what he feels. That's part of his teaching, modeling, modeling the sympathies and mercies of a godly man. I'm moved with compassion toward the crowd. Because already three days they stay on with me and they do not have anything that they could eat. And to release them still fasting, to release them still fasting I do not wish lest they give out on the way. And his disciples say to him, Whence for us in a desert are loaves so great in amount, so as to satisfy a crowd so great in size. Same word twice. So many for so much. So great an amount for so great in size. Where are we going to find that kind of bread? And Jesus says to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few little fish. Now, did you notice that? We just read about little dogs and little crumbs, and here they've just got little fish. What could little fish possibly do to such a great crowd? In the hands of Jesus? You have no idea. Loaves and little fish in Jesus' hands. Amazing results. So, charging the crowd to take a seat on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and after giving thanks, he broke them and began giving them to the disciples and the disciples to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up the excess of the broken pieces, seven full hampers. And those eating were 4,000 men apart from women and children. So at least 12,000, 15,000, 20,000. And after releasing the crowds, he got into the boat and came into the regions of Magadan. That's across, then on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So I imagine when you read this, as I trust you did. You thought, that seems just kind of weird. I mean, two stories of feeding like this. Chapter 14 is a story of feeding. Chapter f- six, 15. I know where we are. Chapter 15 is a story of, of feeding. Right next to each other like that. And And in this one, the disciples... They're lost again about what they're going to do for this crowd. Don't they remember they just fed a big crowd before? It's, it's strange to see these two stories right next to each other. And, of course, liberals look at that and they say, oh, they're just the same story. He just tells it two different ways. They're both made up anyway, so why not make up two stories? Well, of course, they're not made up, and they're not one story. It's two stories. And, and now that you and I have looked at it more closely, what's the big difference between the stories? The crowds. The first crowd is a crowd of Jews. This is a crowd of Gentiles. They're different locations. And Matthew uses some different words. Uh, English versions tend to mask this. They just say baskets, they collected baskets, but actually Matthew uses two different words for baskets. You may have noticed it says hampers instead of baskets. What's well, a different word? The word he uses for the baskets of food for the, uh, the Jewish crowd are, were, is a word that's used of Jews carrying kosher food in these baskets in Rome. This is a Gentile word. And it's a large basket. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, it's so large that Paul is let down over a wall in one of these baskets. So these are long, large baskets or hampers, but it's a more Gentile word, not a Jewish word. So different places, different terms, uh, different story. But still you're saying, well, but I don't understand how could the apostles have forgotten the other miracle? Well, we don't need to think. Well, first of all, let me say just on that. If you would say, how could they forget the other miracle? Right, because none of us would ever forget how God had blessed us in the past, right? I mean, none of us would ever get into a difficult situation and remember how many hundreds of times God has gotten through us through worse situations and how many hundreds of times He's met our needs far beyond our expectation and be in fear and panic, right? We would never do that. That doesn't happen to people like us, right? Never, exactly. No, of course, it happens to us all the time. That's why... The book of Deuteronomy is so full of exhortations not to forget, but to remember, because people do forget. Moses had to feed two times. Elijah fed two times, as I recall. So uh, that's one thing. But even beyond that, let me just tell you, you can read about the other feeding in John chapter 6, and you'll see more details in John 6. And I'm just going to single out for you a couple. How did they respond when he fed them there in John 6? John 6, 15 Jesus knew that they were coming to, going to come and take him by force to make him king. So this was the Jewish crowd, and, and they wanted to make a king who could make food out of nothing. They thought that was great. Not repentant at all, but, but free food all the time? Yep, I'm, I'll sign up. So he withdraws from there. So maybe remembering that, the disciples think, well, he's not going to do that again right away because the way it went last time. And further, when that same crowd chased him down and found him a second time, Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, that's, this is John 6:26. I know you're taking notes, John 6:26. "Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled." So the sign had not made the message to them it was supposed to make. That was John 6:15 and 6:26. So the apostles could be understood to be thinking, maybe he doesn't want to do this again. It looks like he doesn't want to do that again, but it's a different crowd, and he is willing to do it. And so he brings it up, he asks about the food, he gets the food, and he multiplies it, and he feeds all of them. The first crowd, how many baskets are taken up? Twelve. Kind of makes you think of the twelve tribes of Israel. Here, how many baskets are taken up? Seven. Kind of makes you think of, well, not twelve. That's about all I put on it. I don't know that seven necessarily means any sim- significant symbolic thing here, except it's not 12. It's, it's not, not Israelite. It's, it's Gentile. So don't try too hard to find some, some magic for the number there. I don't think there's any magic, but 12 is pretty obvious. So that's the story here. We have a story of healing and a story of feeding. Now, this is the story that we've had before. That was Roman numeral 1. The story before us, Roman numeral three. Now, finally, Roman numeral four, uh, let me say that again. Roman numeral one was the story that had gone so far. Roman numeral two was the story before us. Roman numeral three is the story to come. And yes, we're going to have spoilers. That's the word that goes in the parentheses, spoilers. Where are we heading with this? The Messiah of the Jews reaching out to the Jews in that generation is not having it. But meanwhile, the Gentiles are saying, yes, please, crumbs are just fine. (laughs) We'd be very grateful for, for, for all the crumbs you want to give us. So where's this going? Well, first, let me point you to the announcement we'll study in the next chapter. Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18, give the announcement where Simon Peter confesses that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God and Jesus says he's blessed for that confession which is a revelation of God and then he says verse 18 you are Peter and upon this rock the rock of your confession I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it now that church is something that at this point lies in the future it does it hasn't existed It doesn't exist but it will exist and Jesus will build this church and this church will be something that was not revealed in the Old Testament not prophesied in the Old Testament. Oh yes the Old Testament prophesied blessing for the Gentiles and blessing for the Jews but it never prophesied about the church in which Jew and Gentile would be one in blessings in between the two comings of the Messiah. We didn't read about that in the Old Testament. So Jesus prophesied the church and, and what is going to be Significant about this church. That's the announcement. Let her be the fulfillment. And for that, simply turn to the last chapter in the book and the last verses of the last chapter in the book. Matthew 28. After His resurrection, Jesus meets them in Galilee of the Gentiles and says, verse 18... All authority has been given to me in Judah and Jerusalem. Is that what your Bible says? No, in heaven and on earth. All authority everywhere. Capital will be in Jerusalem, yes, but that's not the whole kingdom. All authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he says, go make disciples not just of Judah and Jerusalem, but of all the nations baptizing them and teaching them, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. So there it is. Their mission will go will be to go to all the nations. Israel has rejected their Messiah, have handed him over to Rome to be crucified. He's been crucified. He's died. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And the mission of this church that he announced that he's now going to build, beginning with Pentecost, will be a mission to the Gentiles, as well as the Jews. Jew first, but also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. And we see that, the history of that in Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, which Phil is teaching us uh, so well and helpfully, hope you all are coming to that uh, in the Sunday school hour, where the ministry begins in Jerusalem and spreads out through Judea, then to Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. We just saw the, the, the mission to a A Gentile who was a Jewish proselyte, a proselyte to Israel. So he was purely Gentile, but he was a proselyte to Israel. And then the chapters that follow, we're going to see pure pagans. The gospel going to pure pagan lands. And the church taking in people from all those lands. And the explanation, you could read about it in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, where Paul tells us this is not spiritual Israel, this is not new Israel, this is a new man. And it's not the fulfillment of prophecy, it's a mystery, he says in chapter 3, that was revealed to me and the other apostles. that Jew and Gentile would be one body with the same blessings and the same standing in the spiritual body of Christ. And he says it again in in Colossians 1, that this mystery is Christ in you, you Gentiles, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that was made known to him and that he preached. And that is where we're living that's where us little dogs get all the crumbs that we're enjoying. We're brought up into this. We're, we're made part of this. God had an eternal plan for all his elect, Jews and Gentiles alike. And so the mission of the Jewish Messiah to Israel uh, ends up reaching us Gentiles and putting us in the spiritual body of Christ on equal footing and equal blessings with the Gentiles in this age. The children's bread was rejected by too many of the children and so many still today reject it. But one day, God will give them repentance. And one day, they will embrace their Messiah. And Paul says, that will be glory. That will be like life from the dead when that day comes. But it's offered to us. Now, there's a place in the book of Acts where Jews reject it. And Paul says, fine, I'll, return. I'll turn to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles all go, yay. Well, you're a Gentile. Do you go, Yay. the gospel comes to us. And that's why. And that's how. that's how you and I can approach God through Jesus Christ as children of God, redeemed, forgiven, given new life, made children of God and and among his people. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And we're among the Gentiles who come to him because of Jesus Christ, the son of Abram. And we're part of all the families of the earth who are blessed in him. Praise God. Amen? Let us...